Oh, all right, here we go. <clears throat> Dear Jessica, you've asked me to stop writing you these letters. You've told me they will never change things between us, but I can't, Jessica. I just can't let you go. Even Darth Vader, an evil Sith Lord, could not leave his son to die at the end of the Return of the Jedi. How could I do that with you? You make me feel safe, Jessica, so safe and so warm. When I'm with you, I feel like when Luke Skywalker crawled up inside his Tauntaun to protect himself from the sub-zero temperatures of Oth, where the Rebel Alliance was hiding from the Galactic Empire. I don't want to lose that feeling. I don't want to be left out in the cold all alone. The internet is a truly amazing thing. <laughs> One small Google search for love letter, and you get a crown jewel like this. Okay? And I'm not sure who would have been more embarrassed if this was read out loud in front of the class, Jessica or the dude who gallantly put his heart out there like Princess Leah's desperate I love you in the Bespin carbonite freezing chamber, waiting to see whether there would ever be an I know coming back or not. Do you approve? Okay, all right, good. All right, I tried really hard. We kind of cringe at the idea of our, of our uh, personal mail being read out loud, okay? Our personal letters, especially, especially ones like these. Um, we're working through a series in Revelation. We started last week. We're going to be working through the book of Revelation all the way through until Advent time in December. And so we're going to be getting really, hopefully, I think, a lot more familiar with this letter. I don't, I've never preached through it. As um, far as I know, I, I heard we had a class on it a long time ago that Orlin was a part of, that you were leading, like way back in the day. But I don't, I don't know that we've ever actually preached through it as a, as a letter. So um, it's, we're kind of in new territory. But I wanted, us to, I wanted to remind us that this is a letter, and that this is a letter that was meant to be read out loud. Um, I... I wish that we had the time to just sit and read the entire letter of Revelation, all 22 chapters, out loud, to let the, just the kind of the fullness fall on us, because that was the way this was intended to be. But it's not just a letter, it's a circular letter, which means that it's addressed to multiple people, multiple groups, but it's going to be read out loud to all of those groups. And so it would, it would have traveled, and there's a reason for that. I mean, there's a practical reason for that. First off, in the day and age of the first century church, writing is it's expensive. The materials are expensive. It takes a lot of skill, which is not readily available to everyone. And the transportation and distribution of a letter is hard to do. And so if you're going to send a letter, you're not just going to send it to one person. You're going to send it to a group of people, and you're probably going to send it to multiple groups of people if you can get away with it. Okay? And so there's a practical standpoint, but from our perspective, there's also a spiritual standpoint to this. One of the things that characterizes that you hear in this address to the church in Ephesus, and that you're going to hear in all the addresses to the seven churches at the beginning of this letter is, the one who has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Jesus knows, John knows, that there is truth in here that is going to matter to people that are outside of just the situation of this church. 
So remember, on the one hand, and we were talking about this in class this morning, and by the way, if you're, if, if you're wanting to dig deeper into some of the things, because again, I'm, I'm flying over the top of this. We're going to deal with four churches today, all right? And I'm flying over the top of it. We're going to be digging deeper in our class times into these things, so if you want to, please join us for class at 9 o'clock, because then we're going to be spending more time digging into the details, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time on today. But for these churches, there is this realization that this is, this is something that happened, situations that they were dealing with historically in a real time and place, and Jesus is addressing their real situation then, but with a realization that there's stuff that matters to us now. The things that he's talking about here to them are situations that are common to all churches in all times. And so I think there's a, there's a word for us here to listen to. There's a word for us to hear. When we look at the addresses to the churches, to the seven churches in Revelation, each of them is really, really different in their makeup. And they're all, like I said, they're all facing different problems and different responses to common problems. But none of them is facing issues that is not common to the churches throughout history. And they all need the same thing. They all need the risen Christ to be in their midst, speaking reality into being in them. And so that's what Jesus does. Jesus says, all right, to you, church in Ephesus, to you, church in Smyrna, to you, church in Pergamum, to you, church in Thyatira, to you, church in Sardis, to you, church in Philadelphia, to you, church in Laodicea, I'm going to speak my word into being in you. And I'm going to remind you of who I am. And I'm going to remind you of who you, that I know who you are. I'm going to, and, and I think that's very comforting. To every single one of these churches, Jesus says, I know you. I know your identity. I know your situation. I'm not standing far off away from you, just casting judgment on you, going like, you need to get better at this, you need to get better at that. You need, like, I'm in, I am, I am the Lord who walks among the seven lampstands. I am in the mess with you. I know what's going on. I know who you are. And I think that's very, very important for us to remember today is whatever it is that we are facing, Jesus is sitting in the middle of it with us. He knows us. And he wants to remind us of who he is, but he also wants to remind us that he knows who we are. Maybe even better than we know who we are. And that should be a great comfort to us as well as a challenge to listen. But to all of them, he gives them a promise of of salvation. To the one who is the victor, to the one who overcomes. Each of these letters is supposed to be encouraging, okay? And I think I didn't get that when I was younger. I, I I think for a lot of my life, I imagined a very stern, risen Jesus kind of saying, okay, here's your progress report. You know, now we're, going to, now we're going to talk about what you've done wrong since I was last on earth and what needs to get shaped up before I come back, okay? The more that I read this, the more that I realize that that is not the tone that Jesus is taking. These are not progress reports. These are love letters. Jesus loves the church. The church is the bride of Christ. I love my bride. I don't give my bride progress reports. <laughs> she wouldn't still be my bride if I did. <laughs> okay? And, you know, 
That's not the relationship that we're called to have. And so you need to realize when Jesus is talking to the churches and when he's saying these things, it is out of the intimate love and desire that he has for them. And, and so all of these come back to the affections and the relationship that we have with Christ. And so these are encouragements. Okay, they may be challenging. There are things that we'll have to change, but they are all about renewing the intimacy with Jesus. And I think it's also important to understand that we can't pull them out from the rest of the letter. This idea of being victorious or overcoming is not an easy concept. And you cannot really, honestly, when the churches are hearing this, they will not be able to understand just based on their little section what it means to be victorious or what it means to overcome. The entire rest of the letter is what's going to teach us what it looks like to be victorious or to overcome or to conquer as Christ conquers. Okay? If we detach this, then we get our own ideas of what it means to be victorious and what it means to overcome and what it means to conquer, and that's not good. So realize that these addresses are kind of priming the churches and priming us for the whole rest of the letter to see what's going on. Okay? So, here we go. We're going to jump into these, okay? We're going to jump into these love letters, and we're going to start with Ephesus, okay? Ephesus, I think, is the first, the first person, the first church addressed for a number of reasons, okay? And, and just kind of as a side note, most likely the reason that they're in the order they're in is just really a practical one for ones, is that this is going to be the order that the church, that it's delivered to, Okay? It's going to go to Ephesus first, and then it's going to go to Smyrna, and then it's going. To, and you can actually look at it geographically; it kind of makes a big circle. Okay, so it literally is a circular letter. But on the other hand, I think the reason that Ephesus comes first is also spiritual. One, because Ephesus is kind of the place where everything is happening right now. Okay, the center of Christianity changes throughout history. It starts in Jerusalem, kind of moves up to Antioch. By the time, by the end of the first century when this is being written, Ephesus is kind of where everything's happening. Later on, it'll move to Alexandria in Egypt. Then it'll move up to Rome. Then it'll move to France. Then it'll move to England. Now it's in Colorado Springs. That's what we joked. I'm just kidding. Not really. Okay. It's, you know, but I mean, the, the center of Christianity is actually really, if you want to be honest, I mean, the center of Christianity right now is in Africa and South America and parts of Southeast Asia. That, I mean, that's really where the center of Christianity is right now. It's not anywhere around us, which might be a little humbling for us in a good way, right? But right there, at this point, when he's talking to Ephesus, they're kind of at the center of where everything's happening. And Jesus, he, he acknowledges this. He says, I know your deeds. Ephesus is influential, and they are busy, and they are tearing it up for Jesus, they are characterized by hard work, they, are, they have perseverance, they are not tolerating evil. I mean, this sounds like the kind of church that you would really want to be a part of. This sounds like a church, it, it really does. It's setting the tone for everybody else around them. And then Jesus pulls this out, and, and, and this to me is more than an ouch. This is kind of scary, honestly. You have forgotten your first love. Ooh. 
What does that even mean? When I think about it, it means that this church has everything but the one thing that Jesus deserves most of all, the heart of their affections. First love. What is it? The love that we felt when Jesus broke through and showed us the fullness of his affections for us. Do you remember that? Do you remember the point when you really knew how much Jesus loved you? Do you remember what that felt like? Do you remember what that experience was like? Do you remember it as something new or do you remember it as something long ago and far away? If it feels long ago and far away, this is for you. This is for me. First love. The love that was always prioritized and had time for the beloved one. The way we prioritized Jesus when we realized how much he loved us. When we were like, I can't wait to spend time with God. Oh, we have a Bible study? I can't wait to do that. Oh, I get to... You know, I, I was talking with a guy at, 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 I was talking with Barton Preeb, who's over at Central Baptist, and we were talking about new converts and how much fun it is when you get somebody that's like, wait, seriously, there's a Bible class? Like, we actually get to study the Bible? We get to do that? This is so cool. You mean, like, I, I don't, do I have to pass a test before I can come in? No? Huh! That's so great. Like, do you remember that? Do you remember those feelings when you were so excited about who God was? First love, the love that's marked by attentiveness and tenderness and extravagance. You've forgotten your first love. What are we supposed to do with that? How does it happen? Earl Palmer, um, who's a scholar, talks about it. He, he calls it the Ephesus problem. And he says it's, it's something that plagues a, lot of, plagues a lot of Christians. And he says the thing is, is it's, it's not like anybody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I'm going to just completely turn my back on my first love. He says it happens quietly. It happens gradually. Imperceptible shifts in our focus. And he says, you know, the irony of the condition is that the Christian then becomes totally preoccupied or fascinated with themes and goals that would never have won them to Christ or his bride in the first place. I mean, think about it. What, what is it that really preoccupies us as a church? I, I, don't, I don't even, I just, I just want to ask you this. What are the things that really preoccupy us as a church? Everything going a certain way on Sunday morning? You know, singing the songs that I want to sing. I, I don't even know what it is. I, you know, you tell me. But are those the things that would have won you to Jesus and his kingdom in the first place? If I, and I'll just take a moment of confession here. If I'm honest, the things that preoccupy me as a minister a lot of times are not the things that won me to Jesus. And when I think about this, you've forgotten your first love thing, that's the part that really hits me between the eyes is like, 
Am I doing ministry out of the deep affection that I have for Jesus and the deep affection that he has for me? Or am I doing ministry out of, well, I got to do this and I got to take care of that and I got to balance that and I got to make sure this person's okay and I got to make sure that that person's in this group is happy and that, like, whoa, 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 whoa. Where are my affections? Where's the seat of my love? And that's something I think we all have to come back to as disciples of Jesus. There is no discipleship without the deep affection for Christ. It's just busy work at that point. You, you cannot be discipled by somebody that you don't love. You can be taught by somebody that you don't love. You can be instructed by somebody that you don't love. But you can't be discipled by someone that you don't love. Jesus says, it's time to repent. You know? And I, and I think about it, it, repenting, like Ephesus really didn't even have anything bad to repent of. You know, the things that they were doing were good. They were championing doctrine and work and mission and apologetics and progress and service and study and philosophy and all these things that are great, but they're not first. It happens in marriages, it happens in friendships. It most certainly can happen in our relationship with Christ where we start working on things that are good instead of what's first. And so Jesus repenting is opening ourselves back up to our first love. Will you open yourself back up to me? Will you allow me to renew your affections? Will you be still and know that I am your God? And he puts a warning at the end. He says, I'm going to remove the lampstand. Okay, and, and, and again, if this is a progress report, then it's Jesus saying, shape up or else I'm going to take you out of the, or you're out of the club. Okay, that's not what this is. This is a love letter. Why does Jesus say, I'm going to remove the lampstand? Simply this, where the love of Jesus is missing, so is the light of love for others in the light of the gospel. It's not a lampstand anymore. The church just becomes a mere shell of its former self. It's not a lampstand, it's a stick. It has no business being in a place where it would shine the light because it's it has no light anymore. It's just an empty shell. And so Jesus says, let me put the light back in the empty shell. Let me put the heart of who you are back in the middle so that you can be everything that you are intended to be. It's a strong word. It's a word I need to hear. It's a word we need to hear. And it's a word that all of these churches that are going to follow needs to hear because all, I think all of the things that they're dealing with come out of or are related to this idea of first love. When we move to Smyrna, the next church, we're dealing with a church that is under pressure, okay? 
And, he, and Jesus introduces himself as the one who is the first and the last. If you remember what we talked about last week, the arche and the telos. I'm your, I'm your foundation and I am your destination. The one who was dead and is now alive again. Like he is setting up the tone for the letter and talking about who he is. By reminding them of who he is and reminding them that he knows who they are and where they are, He's going to talk about their situation because while, F, while everything is moving and shaking and going great in Ephesus, everything is terrible in Smyrna, okay? This word, he says, I know, he doesn't say I know your deeds, he says, I know your affliction. We talked about this in class. This word affliction is thlipsis, okay? It is named for a type of torture in which you would lay someone on a flat rock and then you would ever so carefully roll a heavy boulder over on top of them and leave it there. It was not designed to be a quick death. It was designed to be a long, drawn-out process of slowly being crushed under the weight until you suffocated because you just didn't even have the strength to draw breath anymore. Okay? It was, it was like literally placing a cave-in on somebody and then letting them stay there to die. That's what this word means, crushing pressure. And the only place that it gets used in the New Testament is in the context of when the kingdom of Jesus meets the powers of the world. Okay? It's like it's, it's these two things come together, and there's a crunch, and you are stuck in the middle of it. And you get caught in the crushing pressure of the kingdom of Jesus overtaking the kingdom of the world. And this is, also, this is also one of the two places where Jesus doesn't say, hey, we need to talk about this. I have this thing that, that, that is against you. He doesn't say that to the church in Smyrna. And I think that's really important because our natural reaction when affliction starts hitting us is what went wrong? What, like, like, What's wrong with God? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with this world? Like, like something is wrong. And Jesus is like, you're not doing anything wrong. You are experiencing affliction because you are drawing near to me in your affections. And that may be a really hard reality for us to grasp, but, but, but let's just be honest when we actually start to disciple ourselves to Jesus, life, we may experience joy and we may experience passion, but in general, life becomes harder, not easier. I spend so much time with so many of you who talk about like the, the difficulties of life. And, and a lot of times I, I, I would have to agree with people that are much wiser than me that have told me that the fact when Jesus tells us, I have come that you may have life, and, and have it to the full, that does not mean that you may come have your best, most happy life now. I have come for that. It's, I have come so that you may experience life the way that it was intended to be experienced, even the terrible parts. That you would experience it in the fullness of knowing who I am and who you are and where this is all going. So their pressure isn't because of faithlessness. It's because the people of Smyrna are living a Jesus-first life in a Rome-first and a Jewish hostility context. Okay? And this pressure has a cosmic dimension. I can't say this enough, okay? 
the powers that are set against Jesus are operating as part of it. And, and, and I know we don't like talking about personified evil, but it's so important to realize. Because otherwise it's very, very hard for us to make sense. I'm not talking about seeing an evil spirit around every corner every time something bad happens to you, but I'm saying realize there are powers that are set up against Jesus and they can't touch him. They can't. Why? Because he's already ascended. He's already won. So what are they going to do to hurt him? What, I mean, the hero in every story faces the crisis, or most stories, faces a crisis when the bad guys do what? When they can't touch him, they go after who? His family. The ones that he holds dear. Who does Christ hold dear in his heart? You. Me. And I think, I, like, I just think it's so important. There's a, I, I heard this quote from John White, who's a, a Canadian psychologist. He says this, Satan's supreme object is to hurt Christ and hurt Christ's cause. You personally are of no interest to Satan. It is only as you relate to Christ that you assume significance in the enemy's eyes. And so I guess, I mean, I guess I can be honest. There's, there's a really easy way to avoid this extra pressure, okay? Don't love Jesus. Don't. don't. Don't really disciple yourself to him. Go for, like, that Christianity light stuff that just, you know, I come on Sunday and then I do my own thing. And I mean, there you go. You can, you can avoid all the pressure that way. but what you are sacrificing on an eternal level for the pressures that you face now by pursuing the affection of Christ as he has affection for you. It is a much greater loss. That's what Jesus is saying, right? He says to the one who overcomes, I will give the crown of life. He's talking about you know they have the eternal they have the they have the laurel wreath that is given to the victor right in the in the games and it's made of a lot of things olive branches um the one in Corinth because it was honoring Poseidon was made of wilted celery because it looks like seaweed that's always nice and great to take home to the family and show them hey look what i won okay think about it these these crowns didn't last but days or weeks but people would like almost die for them. And Jesus says, look, if you're willing to endure this kind of pressure, I will give you a crown of eternal glory. Not just for someday after you die, but like right now. Eternal glory is now and then. Now and forever. It won't fade. And then he says the other piece, and they will not be hurt at all by the second death. And I think it's important to, to realize Jesus does not say this pressure is unfair, so I am going to take it away from you. What Jesus does say is I am your arche, I'm your foundation, and telos, I am your destination. I was here before the pressure came, I will be here after the pressure is gone, and I will be with you all the way through it, even if it's past your death. But you will not be harmed at all by the second death. The one who is born once dies twice. The one who was born twice dies once, right? 
we have to think about those things in an eternal perspective and where will the heart of our affections be in light of that. These last two, Pergamum and Thyatira, okay? We talk about, we talk about affections and, 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 and you talk about losing your first love. Eventually, it starts to erode you from the inside out and that's, that's what's going on with Pergamum, okay? They live in an area where emperor worship has gone on since Caesar Augustus, since like 30 BC almost, okay? And so they've done a really good job on the outside of saying like, no, we're not going to do that. And they're enduring pressure because of that on the outside. But then here's what's happening. While they're doing all this pressure on the outside, on the inside, some of their thought processes are being compromised because they have not given Christ their full affection. And so they're starting, to, they're starting to be careless in their tolerance. Jesus references Balaam and the Nicolaitans. I, we have no idea who the Nicolaitans were to the best of our knowledge or what their teachings were, okay? But here's what I do know, okay? One, he makes a reference to Balaam. Okay, if you remember... If you remember Balaam, Balaam was the, the, the prophet guy that was, you know, had the donkey and, you know, if you remember all that, right? Um, you know, and if God can use a donkey, he can use you. You've heard that sermon before, right? I hope. Maybe not. We'll save that one for later. Um, but, but Balaam's name literally means the Lord or conqueror of the people in Hebrew, Nicholas means the same thing in Greek. What Jesus is saying is there are some people that are bringing these thoughts and these thoughts and mindsets into your midst that are trying to conquer the people away from me. What is it that has brought down every single empire in history? Has it been pressure from the outside or is it ha or has it been erosion from the inside? <clears throat> it's a rhetorical question because it's erosion from the inside is what's always brought down kingdoms. And Jesus is saying, I won't allow that to happen to my kingdom. I won't allow that to happen to you. I'm going to come and I'm going to lay bare what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, what is of me and what is another thing trying to conquer your heart. So don't get careless. Again, that comes back to the affections of the heart thing. If we, if we have if we have seized our affection on Jesus, we will not be listening to the other voices besides him. But when we kind of allow our affections for him to slip to other things, it's that carelessness that starts to come in that says, well, what I'm doing won't hurt anybody else. Or I have the freedom in Christ to do this. Or it doesn't really matter. And then that moves us to the situation in Thyatira. Thyatira has moved from like just being a little careless to just full-on compromising. Yeah. Thank you. I'm so glad somebody laughed at that. This is my first time making a meme, so like, <laughs> yes, okay. That's what's going on. That is exactly what's going on. Thyatira is like, I'm with Jesus, but that looks really good too. And and he even he even uses it. In, Jesus even speaks about it in those terms. Okay? 
I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they, unless they repent of their ways. Here's the thing. If Jesus, if you are the heart of Jesus' affections, he is not okay with you spurning his affections. I am not, I would, I would not be okay with someone that I had given myself completely to doing that, would you? No, none of us are, okay? We know that. And yet, Thyatira has gotten itself to the point where it's living in both and thinking, okay? You think about Jezebel and who she is, or, or who she represents. Jezebel is the wife of Ahab back in 1 Kings, okay? She introduces Baal worship because that's where she's from. It's, a, it's, a mari- it's like a political marriage. She introduces Baal worship. On the front, it's like, no, 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 you can totally worship Baal and Yahweh as well, but Jezebel knows better. She knows that that both-and thinking doesn't really work, so it's just a farce. On the front, it's like, yeah, we can worship both. Underneath, she's killing the prophets of Yahweh, silently taking them out of the picture, because she knows better. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's like, look, you've let this, you've let this person... But really this mindset that this person is just espousing and you've given them power and you've put them in their midst and you've said, no, it's okay. We can do this both and thinking. We can be holy here and then we can do what we want over here. I can be like this on Sunday. I can be like this on Tuesday. I can, I can, I can say this and I can watch that. I can say this and I can do that. I can live like this and I can live like that and it's okay. But you guys know it's a joke. You guys know it's not true. You know that there is no both and with me. You cannot be married to me and be playing the field. You cannot do it. It does not work that way. It never has. It never will. And you're lying to yourself. And you're lying to me. (laughs) And Jesus is like, I know you, so you're not really lying to me. You just think you're lying to me. But again, this is what happens when we this is what happens when we don't pursue our first love with Jesus. When we don't keep kindling the flame of our affection for him, very quickly something else comes in and tries to steal our affections. It's the way it is for all of us on a spiritual level. Adultery kills the first love. It kills the life of the relationship and it leaves it dead. We call it compartmentalization, but that's not what God calls it. God calls it adultery. And yet he's still and yet he's still encouraging. And this is what I'm going to wrap up with, okay? I know this is a lot of information here, okay? It's it's a lot. And I'm still just kind of across the surface. He says this, to the one who overcomes, I will give authority and be the morning star. First this, he says, look, I will give you the, I will give you the, I will let you share in the authority over creation with me. Don't let other lesser gods usurp Jesus' place as your first love. They don't actually have any power to give you. It's a joke. It's a lie. Who really loves you? Who really cares for you? Do these other things really care for you? We've already determined they don't. They hate Jesus. And if they hate Jesus and they can get at Jesus and cause him grief by taking you out, that's exactly what they're going to do. And if they're, and, and 
they can do it by beating you up, but they can also do it by seducing you. Whichever way works better. They don't care. They'll try whatever works. You got to see it for what it is. He says, also, I will be your morning star. I will be your star in the darkness. If you will be loyal under the pressure to abandon him, he will see you through. Jesus, we have a Jesus who is jealous for us in the best way possible, who will move mountains if we will hold fast to him as our first love. That's the promise that he gives this church that is compromised. If you will be uncompromising for me, I will be uncompromising for you. I always have been. And I always will be. All of these things are about the same thing. All of these things come back to this. Remembering our first love. Church, what does it mean for us to remember our first love? When I look at these four churches, I see this. When distractions start to come, remembering our first love means being still and listening for your lover's voice calling you. How often in the busyness will you let yourself be still and go spend time with Jesus? When we are being crushed between the kingdoms like Smyrna, will you be still and allow yourself to be held in his love for you? Because that's what he wants to do. He is near to you who are grieving. He is near to us who are afflicted. When we, have comprom- when we are getting careless with our affections, he says, come back to my table. Feed on the true life. He, calls it, he, he says to the church in Pergamum, I'll give you the true manna. I'll give you the real bread of life. Stop eating at the table of fakers and come to my true table where there's true life. We're going to do that now here in a second. We're going to come to the true table and feed on the life of God. Remember, when we're compromised in our love, turn around, come back, leave our lesser loves that do not love us, and come back to the true lover of our soul. And remember that our first love is also the victor. The overarching message of Revelation is things are not as they seem. They never have been. Which side do you want to be on? Jesus calls you to come stand on the side of the victorious lover. And so as we worship, as we sing, let's turn our affections toward him. The one who loves us, has always loved us, will always love us to the very end. Amen? Let's stand and worship together.